What a great way to wake up. With a cup of logic, reason, and common sense. Welcome to the Independence Morning View. Let's get to it. Good morning to you wherever you are in the world. I'm Johnny Anderson. I'm joined this morning by Bruce Adams. Okay, let's go ahead and get started this morning. GP, Bruce, good to see you both. How are you guys? GP, what's up, man? You've been followed by uh, Antifa to your studio today? <laughs> not not today. No? I'm actually trying to find out what uh, national parks are going to be open as California is going to be opening here shortly, completely. Oh, congratulations. So Does that include Los Angeles? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. No, you need a cure first. You need a cure first. Yeah, we need a cure in California first. Um, our crime rates just shoot, shooting through the roof. Uh huh. It's a pretty sad situation. Bruce, how are you this morning? I'm doing good. Okay, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to report. It's windy. Yeah. Thanks, Bruce. You, yeah, yeah, thanks, Bruce. Okay, so what do we got this morning? Something out of Los Angeles. I, I'm, I'm just curious really? because, the, yeah, yeah, really, right? Because LA is closed, right? Like the nightlife mm-hmm. is closed and the the clubs are closed and all that stuff, right? Or am I wrong? What's that? The LA nightlife and everything's is closed. closed. Yes, it's closed. everything's yes, closed. Yes. Okay. Unless it's a restaurant. So, okay. restaurants well, are open. They're saying now that there's an explosion of this is just from yesterday. They're saying now that there's an explosion of a date rape drugging e- epidemic in LA. How can there be an mm-hmm. explosion of it when there's nothing open? How does that make any sense? That's a good question. But you could be having little social parties. Like, hey, okay. let's go hang out over here. Bunch of people, parks, whatever. Okay. It may be. All right. Is that a, is that a common thing to go? You know, take a walk. Oh, street par- parties. Is- oh yeah. 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 yeah street yeah. parties. Street parties. House parties. All that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, You're kidding me. No. Okay. All right. Well, I, you know, I kinda, it's, it's I- easier now. I can see it easier now because people because the bars aren't open, so people are more than likely like, hey, we're all hanging out, have a drink. Mm-hmm. But yeah. From what you tell me, the parks are are quite. Uh, Quite nice places to congregate in, right? They are. Actually, most of the time they are. And and people are... It just depends upon who's controlling it. If it's extremist groups, the parks is the worst place to ever be anywhere. Whatever it may be. I'm referring to gangs also. I, 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 that all... Gangs, the, anyone that causes violence or is out there perpetuating violence is an extremist group to me. Period. I mean, that's just... How it is for me. So, yeah, if, depending upon what extremist groups control these parks. Yeah. Most of them are controlled by the great neighborhoods. And we try and keep all those kind of people out. We, you know, they just make it very uncomfortable for them to be there when everyone's sitting there with their cameras on them saying, hey, how you doing? You enjoying our park? <laughs> and, and they tend to leave. But yeah, it's good. How about your parks? Well, these parks are always, well, these parks, I mean, unless you're in like a city or something, I mean, you kind of, parks are usually peaceful, but if you go into areas like downtowns and in cities and stuff, I mean, you've seen them. I mean, you and I walk past. Yes. So it, um, toilets are optional. Yeah. I mean, it's just in the cities. I mean, you just got to take it for what it is, but where I'm at nice places, very nice places, very peaceful, nice place to sit down and relax. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just enjoy the day. You know, I, I always see those things that are full this time of year anyway. And rightfully so. That's what they should be. You know, you're out there having a nice picnic on a hillside somewhere. It's just it's just nice. But so what's the deal with not having a lot of public restrooms in over there? Is that a, well, is that just a cultural do. thing? Or? Well, no, they, they do. But it's uh-huh. just like in the cities, you, you don't really you don't really see them too much. 
No, because you don't have gas stations on every corner like we do. All right. So we were talking about space the other day. I mean, we we go back and forth about, um, you know, what's what's going on in the uh, the interstellar world. We talk about (laughs) quite a bit and what SpaceX has been doing with Elon Musk and all those uh, all those people there, uh, I think has been fantastic. It's been a great step uh, in the right direction. And now he's looking to build a Mars starship in Texas. Okay, so. We talked about SpaceX. Uh, his goal is to start the first ships to Mars in 2025, is it? Is that the right time? Uh, 2022. 2022. Okay. So now that he's proven that he can safely transport uh, humans into orbit, he says he's going to start taking them much further, right? That's that's his goal. And he says that he's going to be putting more focus into their development of the company's next generation Starship, right? This is what he's calling it. His quote was, uh, please consider the top SpaceX priority, apart from anything you could reduce to the Dragon to return risk, to be a Starship. That's going to be their next goal here. So the Crew Dragon spacecraft launched atop a Falcon 9 rocket at Cape Canaveral, blah, blah, blah. This Starship is going to be this massive spacecraft that Musk hopes that he'll eventually transport humans to the moon and to Mars. So this system that they've had, that they've used to get to the ISS, that's not what they're going to be using, apparently. They're going to go off with this new thing. So there's a new concept art that he's put out. And essentially, it's kind of a, it's a mix. It's interesting. Uh, It's a mix. I've got the article up there if you want to see it. But to me, it looks like it's a mix of the Falcon 9 and a space shuttle. So this is going to be the passenger compartment one for transporting like astronauts or or other passengers this is also going to be the one i'm pretty sure that he's going to use for point-to-point travel so you know from one point on earth to another point on earth travel times being anywhere from 30 minutes to like 45 minutes i mean it's supposed to be really fast Mm -hmm. and the large they're also going to use the the one we talked about was it yesterday day before yesterday whatever it was the um bfr that one's going to be the large cargo craft it's going to carry the components for building the the colony on mars or satellites even so yeah i, I don't know i think it looks pretty cool it'd be interesting to see uh where they go with it is he going to send up robotics to mars kind of like what we've done with like the rovers with nasa is, is that what the plan is to try and construct this this habitat i mean do, and do it remotely is that is that possible it's possible it's also honestly that what they could be doing is just launching and stuff up there to get it to get the supplies there and then send astronauts in. I'm not really sure exactly what he's intending to do. I I have a feeling that they're probably just going the astronaut route and not doing robotics because that's years more development to get the robotics. So, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. You know, I often wonder what that latency is between NASA and that rover they have up there. I I often wonder what that is. Can you imagine? I want to say it was a few minutes, something like 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Okay. You know, some technically, I mean, that's not that bad, right? That's a bad lag Skype call, but I mean, that's, that's really not that bad, right? Considering. Well, I mean, 20 minutes, it depends on what kind of tasks the robots are doing. If you're, if you're trying to do, have a, like a precision, like construction building or something, you know, they have to be very precise. Then you're going to be running into problems because you send it a command to it. Well, if it messes something up and you have to change the command or, or there's a hiccup or something, you won't know for 20 minutes after you've sent the command so you won't know for 40 minutes to an hour that there's a problem and by then it's already too late it's you know you would have to send another yeah it it could be problematic depending on what you're doing more stuff out of elon musk yeah he's put 58 Mm -hmm. more satellites in orbit these are internet satellites he's put up there correct so yeah this is um, part of starlink Starlink, right so now he says that uh, let me see he's put 58 new spacex satellites 
into orbit this morning in a historic mission. They were blasted into space. Didn't you just put like 60 something in there? Yeah, you just put 60 last week, I think. Okay. Yeah. He says that they were blasted into space on board a Falcon 9 rocket, same rocket, right? That was used mm-hmm, to send mm-hmm. uh, the crew dragon up. So it's a shame I didn't get to see this. Maybe I can go back possibly on YouTube and watch this uh, where it was done. It was dark and you could actually see it. You could see the rocket getting like you could see the streak going all the way up and then the Falcon 9 breaking off and then landing. Like you could see the streak coming back down on the other side. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, that'd be fun to see. Yeah, so I think I'll um, I think I'll go back and see if I can find that. But it says that it's launched 58 satellites into orbit. It says you can go to findstarlink.com and it can tell you when the satellites will be near you, so you can actually watch them. So it was scheduled for let me see yesterday at 5:12 a.m. Eastern time, but it was pushed back. It says this will be the ninth mission in support of the constellation of network satellites known as Starlink. The goal of Starlink is to create a network that will help provide internet services to those who are not yet connected and to provide reliable and affordable internet access across the globe. So, if you want to see the Starlink satellites, and like I said, you can go to findstarlink.com, I think it is, and enter your location. And apparently on good visibility nights, you'll be able to see them cross over ahead of you. If you download an app, then it will see it. Find Starlink Satellites app is what it's called. Put in your location. And then you can just, I guess you can hold the phone up to the sky and it'll tell you exactly where they are. It's pretty neat. Okay, so it says here that this is a controversial scheme and it'll aim to beam Wi-Fi to people from space using a mega constellations of thousands of satellites. So... I mean, you know more about this than I do. How's all this going to work? This is all done by, I'm assuming, like, they have to power these things. It's all done by solar. So where how how are they getting the internet signal up to it and then have it run through this network and then beam back down? Wouldn't there be a lot of latency loss there? A lot of packet loss? No. So the satellites are communicating to each other using lasers, right? And the information from the satellite to Earth and, you know, back and forth... That is done with microwave, I believe. So the the amount of packet loss, data loss, or latency times is going to be really low. The thing about uh, satellites is uh, with current technology, the, the current satellites that we're using, it's kind of dependent on your weather. If it's rainy or something, you know, it'll it'll mess it up. But the difference is those are like 35,000 kilometers out, whereas these satellites are going to be 500 kilometers out. So it's a lot closer. The signals are going to be a lot stronger. It's going to take a lot less energy to transmit those signals. So theoretically, faster times, better, more stability. Really, this is an opportunity for you know the entire world, essentially, uh, once he gets all these up and running to have internet. You know, e- even even if you're off, you know, I, I mean, you could be on Mount Everest and and have internet access or be in the jungles of the Amazon or something and get internet access. That's kind of the idea behind this. What kind of speeds are we going to be looking at? Fast. So the thing about the connections between satellites, you know, using lasers, essentially what you have now with fiber optics, that's going to be about the same speeds. Um, that's there. fast. Yeah. Individual people. I mean, you could see anywhere from, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a kind of a guess based on current technology and say about uh, 50 megabits down, maybe five, 10 up somewhere in there. I'm not, I'm, I actually don't really know. I haven't seen actual figures on that. The main thing about these is the low latency times. That's, that's going to be huge. I mean, sending information back and forth to other parts of the world, like to the UK, for example, using the transatlantic, yeah, the speed 
is going to be, I, I think it was on the lines of 45% faster using Starlink than it is the transatlantic cable. And the main advantage there is you're not using a uh, fiber optic cable, which slows down light you know, in, in microgravity with no atmosphere or very little atmosphere, the uh, transmission speeds are at or very close to the speed of light. Now, they are saying that these satellites are kind of the complaint about them is you will be seeing these from Earth, right? They will be in the night sky. You will. I don't think we're really going to see them much in the U.S. yet. I was just actually looking at that and seeing if I could see them in my area. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that you could kind of see them like early morning for maybe three minutes. But the angle of elevation and everything looks like it's going to be about tree line. So I, I probably won't have a chance of seeing him, which means he's probably focusing more on like the equator, uh, getting and then building out from the equator. That's my guess in that. So basically, we're looking at broadband type speeds, is essentially, right? Yeah, I would imagine probably broadband speeds. Yeah. This says high speed broadband is what they're saying yeah. the performance will be. Though I think it's a good step because, as you said, I mean, think about what it's going to do for like science and research and things like that in other parts of the world. Can you imagine those people down in Antarctica will actually have faster internet? You know, the research stations we have down there, the researchers we have in areas, remote parts of the world, like, uh, you know, the Amazon rainforest, that type of stuff. It's fantastic. Real quick, a little bit of house cleaning. The test so far with download speeds, this was done on May 28th, Uh 610 megabits per second down. Wow. Okay. So we're pushing close to 5G territory. All right. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fast. That's pretty fast. Okay. Well, it's possible. I mean, if that's indeed the case, if they do this, if they get it, if they get the network vast enough, or is this the end goal? If they get this network vast enough, do we dismantle the towers we have? Doubtful. This will be a, this is more or less going to be a competitor. I think you're still going to have issues with like, uh, you know, the, the amount of uh, electrical energy in the atmosphere may interfere with this. So I, I honestly, you know, in the middle of a rainstorm, you may drop connection. That may still be a problem. I, I don't know. I haven't seen any tests on that one yet. So it, it could be just, you know, home internet. I, I don't think it's going to be like your cell phones are now going to use Starlink. This is okay. more or less to get the entire world, you know, places, third world countries and whatnot, give them a means to access internet uh, directly themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you'll need really in these places is uh, an antenna, you know, and, and that's pretty much a you know, transmitter receiver and you're, you're golden. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. All right. Now, on top of that, I mean, as you said, rainstorm or something like that could knock it down. Also, we don't know how it would behave inside of a building, do we? Right. So using it, like that's that's part of the thing with like mobile technologies. The buildings would would interfere with it, at least from a, you know, if you if you had something like on top of a building, an antenna or something, it's fine. But if you're trying to make like a phone call using the network from in the building, yeah, that's not going to work. I mean, it's kind of like modern day technology, like with cell phones and whatnot. You go into a large, you know, like a Lowe's or a Home Depot that has a lot of metal, steel, you know, all that. You don't have good signal in there, if any. So I think it'll be the same thing with that. Now, in terms of if you, you know, like if you have a bunch of buildings and is it going to block your view if you're on a high rise that's shorter than the high rises around or something? I don't think that'll be too much of an issue because they're looking at putting something like 14,000 satellites. So you'll probably have a satellite more or less overhead at any given time of the day. 
so you you should be able to get a reception. You'll be able to get any angle. Basically, it's the way it's designed is whatever's the best signal is what you'll get, and the transmission will jump between the satellites based on destination, and it you know automatically picks the quickest route and so on and so forth. Yeah, I was actually kind of wondering about that because the way that it works now in places like Manhattan, GPSs don't work there because of all the buildings. So right. I mean, it makes me wonder if this would be the same way. I don't think so because GPS satellites are geosynchronous orbit, which is that 35,000 kilometer distance I was telling you. That's what our GPS satellites are at. So there you're not nece- you don't necessarily have one overhead at all times. You know, you'll have them on a like a horizontal 45 degree or something like that. Whereas these ones quite literally you're probably going to have one over top of you at any given moment of the day. Also the other day we were talking about Yellowstone you know, the, uh, you know, earthquakes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So researchers now, right, they've come out and they've discovered two ancient super eruptions associated with the Yellowstone hotspot track, right? Now, this is what they say that could be the volcano's pro- uh, province's largest and most cataclysmic event. So two volcanic super eruptions associated with the hotspot that today fuels the geysers, the mud spots and the fumaroles. What is now Idaho and Nevada between 12 and million and eight million years ago, according to the study published Wednesday in Geology, the peer review publication of the Geological Society of America. The first super eruption known as the McMullen Creek super eruption impacted nearly a 4,600 square mile stretch of modern day Idaho. And the second known as Gray's Landing super eruption impacted nearly 8,900 square miles of Idaho and Nevada. The eruptions released clouds of searing hot gas and ash at temperatures greater than 900 degrees Celsius that spread at supersonic speed, sterilizing the land surface, according to Thomas Knott. Uh, a volcanologist at the University of Leicester uh, and the paper's lead author. Sounds like it a good wel- time. Yeah, it welded to the landscape, an area the size of the state of New Jersey would have been enameled in solid black glass. That's massive. That's absolutely massive. Can you imagine that? Both of the newly discovered super eruptions occurred during the Miocene period, defined as the time period between 23 million and excuse me, 23 million to 5.3 million years ago. That's a big gap, by the way. During this period, not said that the super eruptions occurred on an average every 500,000 years. In the past 3 million years, only two super eruptions have taken place so far in what is now Yellowstone National Park, making the occurrence rate just once every 1.5 million years. So does that mean that we're due for one? Is that is that what that means? Is that kind of what he's insinuating here? When did they say the last one was? He says the last one was 630,000 years ago, and it may be up to 900,000 years before another eruption of this scale occurs. That's according to his research. That's what he said. So we're in the window then, right? I think that's what he's saying is it could happen at any any time now. Okay, right here he says, uh, we don't know. He says it could be tomorrow or it could be hundreds of thousands of years into mm-hmm. the future. So, I mean, that's like we're sitting on a ticking time bomb that could go off tomorrow or never. Like, it's just that that's crazy to me, right? I mean, it's I, I understand that, you know, they make the discovery. That's a good discovery to make. That's a fantastic breakthrough. And that's a good analysis that I'm sure he's put together. I'd like to see the paper on it, but uh, which they don't link it here. I wish they did. My first impression of this is... We have an end of the world scenario. In this case, it'd be the end of the United United States scenario. Uh, we need more funds to research it. That's my first impression. Uh, it, it's the cataclysmic climate change. Uh, I think kind of that scenario. And hey, uh, U.S. government, we need some more funds to research this. Uh, so uh, you know, give us a grant. And that's kind of what that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, but I, I don't mean to diminish their work. If uh, you know. 
not saying no, I get or anything. But. I get it. But, at, you know, at the same time, it's like, I mean, what are you going to do about it, though? Right. I mean, it's not one of those things. It's like you can just go and say, oh, well, you know, we can do this to prevent this. You can't really stop that, can you? Like, there's no way you can't stop it, but you could prepare for it. You could do things like, you know, maybe start figuring out a ways to live underground, perhaps, or have better contained biospheres where you live. So if that did erupt, you know, you're protected from the ash cloud. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you would do to really prepare for that. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's kind of an unknown. I mean, we've got like a 300,000 year period. If, it, if it's a up to 900,000 years, right? There's 300,000 years we have, you know, tomorrow. We, yeah, so. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, due to the interest of time, as much as I don't want to, uh, we are going to have to end. So thank you for your time this morning, Bruce. Thank you to all the listeners. For all these topics and more, please check us out later on this afternoon. And I hope everyone has a great morning.